Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, on the eve of the release of her latest collection of work, I spoke with Columbus-based poet Maggie Smith. We discussed how she writes, how the publishing industry works, the inspiration for her work, why she chooses to stay in Columbus, and how everyone has the opportunity to document their lives in their own ways. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com, the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here virtually with poet Maggie Smith. Maggie, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We are speaking on the eve, the week before your next book of poetry comes out, Goldenrod. Wanted to start off by, for those that aren't aware of you, what's your background and and where do you come from? Yeah, so um, I live in Bexley, Ohio now, but Mm -hmm. I uh, was born in Columbus and raised in Westerville. So I've basically lived within, you know, 15 or 20 minute drive of my childhood home (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, for my entire life. So I, um, I sort of like eschew most labels like, oh, she's a woman poet or she's a this poet or she's a mom poet, but I will claim Ohio poet. Um, because I feel like that is, um, like sort of me through and through and frankly, place comes up a lot in my work. So I'm I'm primarily a poet. Um, I have one book of, of prose that came out last year, but for the past, I don't know, 15 years, I've been mostly publishing books of poems. Well, and there is work in Goldenrod that is Ohio specific. You even pull from some other Ohio based poets for yeah. that work, correct? Yeah, there's a series of poems in this book that all have the same title, um, not out of laziness. Um, but when I tell you about what the poems are, you'll be like, actually, she is lazy. So uh, the title of each of these poems is Ohio Cento. And a cento, mm-hmm. or, if, or if you're being sort of fussy in Italian, in the cento. Okay. Um, if you were the kind of person who ordered a croissant at a bakery, you might say cento, but I'm not. So I say cento. Got it. Um, it's a form of poetry where you actually don't do any original writing. Hence the laziness. Okay. Um, you assemble the poem from lines from other people's poems. So it's col- it's collage. Huh. It's like literal okay. verbal collage. So that series of poems I did not write. I assembled. So I would pull a line from one Ohio poet 
And then I think, okay, that line ends on a preposition. What line mm-hmm. from another Ohio poet could follow it? So that's what these poems all have in common. They're all um, assembled from other Ohio poets' words. That's great. And that's the title of the type of uh, construction it is, right? The cento? Yeah, a cento is is that form. So I think it's it's actually a great form for if you have some writer's block or if you're not feeling particularly inspired at the time, you just go to your bookshelf, pull off some books that you like and start seeing what you can build from um, the lines that other people have already written. Hmm. So talk to me about your process in writing a book from... First of all, like how how do you prefer to write? Do you need to block out time? Do you have do you come to it with an intent of I'm going to write this many pieces this day, this week? Oh lord, no. Um, I okay. um, I don't write every day. I was just reassuring um, a recent MFA grad of this. Like I know there are some people who are like, you need to write mm-hmm. X number of words every day, or you need to write for this number of minutes or hours every day, and I. I don't do that. Um, And part of me thinks like, well, maybe it's because I'm a single parent and trying to find time (laughs) in the midst of every everything else. Um, It just doesn't allow for that kind of headspace that I need to be in to write Mm -hmm. a poem. But if I'm honest, I was never a write everyday kind of person, even before I had the excuse of children. So I think, you know, I I sit down to write when I have an idea (laughs) and often. I always write longhand first, and that is mostly because I don't know how to type, Okay, which I realize is kind of stupid for a professional writer. Um, I never learned how to type. Um, so I type with my two index fingers okay. fairly quickly, um, given that that's all that I use. Um, but it what it means is that I can think a lot faster uh-huh. than I can type um, and so I write in, in a notebook or on a legal pad, just a little idea here and there whenever I have it. And sometimes it kind of picks up speed and momentum and um, one idea leads to the next, which leads to the next. And I may draft something in an afternoon fairly quickly. Okay. Um, or I might write down one line and not know what to do with it for 10 years and then stumble upon it in a notebook and be like, oh, I never did anything with that guy from 2004. Maybe, actually, that kind of gives me another idea now based on every experience I've had since I wrote that down. Maybe I should try to build something from that. So it's it's a process of of accruing things, and it doesn't happen in any uh, sort of sensible way. (laughs) Is there any sort of like documentation of that like you know that that happened back in you know 2004 that you wrote that one line down or like keep maybe keeping like a series of notebooks I'm just super curious about the I think about Warhol a little bit how he had his uh, time capsules that you could trace back to the all the and some of it was garbage let's let's be clear all of uh, I mean we all make a lot there's like a maybe 10 percent of what we end up actually doing is worth saving but you have to write the bad 90 to get to the good 10 right right (laughs) and then are you able as the writer of it to sort of uh objectively look at it i guess 
Well, I mean, to answer your first question, it's funny. I was looking for something this morning in my office, which is a disaster area. Um, don't be fooled okay. by the like neat corner you can see behind me right now. Um, yeah. And in looking for this thing I was looking for, I found a tiny notebook that is obviously one of the ones that I would carry like in my purse. Mm -hmm. And flipping through it, I found dated in like 2017. Because when I write in a notebook, I write the date. Okay. And that way, when I go back, I always know where the genesis of the thing came from, at least like the initial idea. Yeah. So I found the first ideas for one of the poems in Goldenrod in this little notebook from 2017. And I know where I was sitting in a car, like I was on a road trip. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of the car, scribbling this stuff down in this tiny little, you know, pack of, you know, basically this a notebook the size of a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And so over five or six pages, I scrawled out some basic ideas that then grew into one of the poems in the book. So oftentimes I can kind of find something and be like, oh, this is where that poem started. Okay. Um, it started there because eventually it ends up in a Word document. Okay. And I might lose the sort of genesis moment mm -hmm. that happened in my messy handwriting. But if I date my notebooks, I can find it. Now, my problem is I don't actually keep like a notebook fill it front to back and then right. move on to another notebook and catalog them. I pick up a notebook that I find lying around. I flipped until I find a blank page mm -hmm. and then I use that blank page, but I date it. So I have lots of notebooks with lots of different dates, sometimes spanning years because there just happened to be a blank page in the middle and it happened to be the one within arm's reach. So God help the person who ever tries <laughs> to organize my papers after I die because they're going to be like, oh, actually, this makes a lot of sense. Like, <laughs> right. This, she was kind of an odd bird and was not very organized. Well, and how um, would and they want to present it, right? <laughs> would they want to present it in a in a chronological way or in a, I hope a, a not. composition I hope they way? Could, I hope they could be, they could just let it be organic and people could see how it, how the sausage was actually made. Right. Um, which is not as neat. Um, and to answer your second question, how do I know when... How do I know what's good or when it's done? Or just um, like, how do you know? Yeah, maybe this is one of the ninety that isn't good, and and yeah. and what what you should carry forward. I mean, I, I feel like when I start writing something, I always am excited about whatever that idea was, or I wouldn't have written it down in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of like, will my excitement remain or will I sort of like will it lose its shine like is it a novelty excitement or is there like real staying power to that idea mm -hmm. and so really the only the only thing I can do is give it time so I try not to write something quickly and then send it out to a magazine for example because I might be in the honeymoon phase with that piece of writing and it's like you know going home with a someone from the bar like the first okay. night you meet them like maybe not a great idea like maybe right. you should wait and have a coffee date in the light of day the week following and see if they're still as interesting as when it's not dark and there isn't like this great song playing on the jukebox that's a fantastic analogy for it <laughs> so and so then so in the composition of a book as a whole how do you get to i noticed that a lot of the work in goldenrod was published prior in would you call them literary journals i don't yeah, know yeah journals yeah okay how do you 
come to a point where you say, I've got enough at this point that the, and, and it makes up a, 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 let's call it a cohesive composition in total. How do you guide that process? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because writing a book of poems is different from writing, I think, any other kind of book. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's called a collection of poems for a reason, right? Like it's a collected body of work over usually a period of time. And so I, I haven't really ever sat down to write a book of poems. I just write a poem at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I get to a certain point where maybe it's been a couple years or I realize in my folder of stuff on my computer that I've got, you know, over a hundred poems that mm-hmm. haven't appeared in book form. And so then I have the process of um, basically printing everything out that I've written since my last collection of poems was published. This is just the process. Like, so for Goldenrod, I printed out everything that I had written since Good Bones, my last book of poems was published. And it was like 120 poems, Okay, um, which is way more than a book. So I just packed them in a suitcase and took them with me on a writing residency to Tucson, Arizona and opened up the suitcase and just started going through the poems on my bed, just sorting them into like, no, maybe, yes. Actually, I'm, I'm a little wishy-washy on this one, but it seems to want to travel with this other guy that I really like. So okay. I think I'm going to give that one a pass Yeah, because it wants to be in conversation. And so at the end of that kind of calling process, I think I had maybe 60 poems But then I had, I actually wrote the book for two more years after that. Okay. So I added more and then took some out to make room for the new, because there are some poems in this book, for example, that I wrote during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So fairly late in 2020, you know, like right before I turned it in to my editor. So it, the earliest poems I finished in, you know, say 2015, but the, but a lot of the work is is quite new. Gotcha. And can you talk about, just for those that don't know, I'm pretty interested in just process of like, how does this industry function? That process that you talked about where most of these are published ahead of time in journals and then put together, that's pretty standard, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you're writing a, I mean, I'm writing poem a poem at a time and I have no idea when they're going to land in a book or how many years that might take. Right. Um, and so it's pretty standard to be, I mean, same with short stories or essays in an essay collection. It's pretty standard to write something, get a few, send them off to a journal or a magazine or a newspaper mm-hmm. and place them individually, little by little. And then how does that placement process work? Um, you mean submitting to journals? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it can happen cold. Like, I don't know anybody at this journal, but I'd really like them to feature my work because I'm a subscriber or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I go to their website and I see what their submission guidelines are. And mm-hmm. I pick four or five poems, say, that I think um, travel well together. You yeah. know, they seem to, like, have some variety, but also they feel cohesive enough that maybe if I'm lucky, if they want one, maybe they take more than one because mm-hmm. they do really seem to group well and then i write a little cover letter that says hey i'm so and so i'd love for you to consider these poems for your journal and 
you know, back in the day, this used to all happen via postal mail. Right. And you would you would fold up a little self-addressed stamped envelope and put it in with your poems. Okay. And then um, if it was a rejection, you'd know because your self-addressed stamped envelope would come back to you in the mail and you could hold it up to the light and see a single slip of paper inside because they would a form like a basic form rejection from one of these journals they would print like 15 on like an eight and a half by 11 <laughs> size and then just slice them into basically like fortune right. cookie sized um fortune sized and it would slips thank you for your submission thank you for your submission this does not meet our current needs yeah the editors you know like nothing personal you were lucky if you got a rejection that was on a whole sheet of paper and maybe had like a real ink signature <laughs> from a human being and you were super lucky if your sase came back and it was kind of thick uh-huh. because then you'd think, oh, there's a contract in here. But sometimes they just sent you your poems back. So you would feel the thickness and you would get your hopes up and you would open it up and it'd be like a slip of paper sandwiched in with your own poems. Well, nice of them to return it to you, <laughs> I, I know. Guess. So these days, most of this happens online through yeah. you know, websites like Submittable. So you just upload your stuff and then you just get like an email saying yay or nay. Um, and that's, that's how it works. And you are compensated for that. Um, not usually. I mean, oh, okay. if you're a poet, um, you're very lucky if you get an honorarium of 50 or a hundred or 200 or, you know, up to okay. you know, $700 or something for, for publishing poems in journals. Um, it is not unusual for your payment to be two copies of said print journal shipped okay. to your address. Okay. So um, this is why, you know, people don't really make living, <laughs> make a living as poets because it's not um, particularly lucrative to do so. And so that's why then you still basically own the poem that you can then publish it in a book. Yeah, you usually um, negotiate for them first uh, serial rights, like for first North American serial rights. And so they have okay. the right to publish it first. And then um, the agreement is that you give them credit when you publish it later in some other shape or form, like in an anthology or in a book. And so the acknowledgments page in the back or the credits page in the back of Goldenrod lists all the journals where the poems first appeared um, as a thank you, because those are the editors who took a chance on uh, to, who took a chance on the poems and, and gave them their first homes. Yeah, you know, that's that's really I'm always so grateful for people who are who are willing to do that. So when you went to Tucson, did you know that basically you had the ability to do a book or did you have to sell it to your publisher at that point? Yeah, I would have. I mean, I didn't. I was just trying to see if I had a manuscript that I could take out, you know, okay. at that point. And I didn't yet. I mean, technically, I had enough poems, but it didn't feel done. Like I okay. knew when I left, I had technically enough poems to make a book of poems, but it wasn't it wasn't what I wanted yet. And hence the two more years of writing okay. to get to a place where I felt like, oh, OK, yeah, this is the thing. This is it. And so there's no agreement at this point, even after those two years that like, yes, this book is going to get published. Nope, there's no guarantee. Yeah. Then it goes to your editor. Then it goes to my editor and you just hope that they say yes. <laughs> OK. And so it's the editor. So 
it's not like, yes, it's being quote unquote edited, but really what they're doing is making a decision about like, yes, this is going to move forward. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the editor and it depends on the press. You know, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, some editors are more hands on and would get into a book and be like, I don't know about these sections or I don't know Hmm. if this poem belongs or I don't think this is the right order or maybe we need to make this slimmer or maybe we Mm -hmm. need to add to it. Um, So I've I've had different experiences with different editors over the course of my career. And the case of Goldenrod, uh, the only thing we had to work on was the title. And other than that, it is in the same order and everything that I sent it um, in as. And then what is the timeline for, can you just talk about, because you're now with Simon & Schuster, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And sort of what the difference is from a very large publisher to an indie press. Yeah, I mean, I, I my first three books of poems were all with small, independent presses. I, my first mm-hmm. book was with Red Hen, and my, fir- my second two books were with... Um, Tupelo. And so usually the lead time for a book, I mean, it's a year or two, typically. So if they take a manuscript in, you know, I think, I think Good Bones, I turned in to my editor there in 2015, um, before the poem itself went viral. And it was published in 2017. So it takes, it takes time. um, Yeah, because they have they have things slated, right? So you have to like, you have to wait your turn. They've already right. told these other 10 authors that their books are coming out. So you don't get to ditch, you know, you right. have to wait until it's your turn. And this, the really the same thing, you know, my experience at, at a larger publisher has been the same, which is that they are really strategic about their lists and what they have room for and what they can promote. And mm-hmm. um, there are more resources, obviously, at a larger publisher, but it's still, um, you can only do so many books a year. That yeah. That's the way that it goes. And so um, I feel really lucky that Goldenrod was able to come out this summer because um, we call it a crash. Um, there wa- there's not There wasn't a lot of time between submission of the book and publication of the book um okay like you know seven months which is uh the fastest i've ever um okay i've ever done i've ever done it but but the book was done when it was done so so i feel okay about that but but planning um you know often they plan lists two three years out Gotcha. and now you are embarking i think next week because the book comes out on a virtual speaking tour yeah what does that look like is it the the publisher putting that together for you and you're just sort of saying yep i'm available for that and you're giving them your availability kind of i mean they um so the publicist who works on the book uh joanna is terrific and so she Mm -hmm. basically finds the bookstores lines up the dates asks me if the date's okay Mm-hmm. I say yes. And then she says, who do you want to be with? <laughs> okay. And I have opinions about that. So I feel really lucky. I was able to, um, for all of the events, say, I want to talk to so-and-so. I want to be partnered with so-and-so. I want to reach out to the lead singer of this band I really admire and see if he'll let me pick his brain about songwriting and play a couple songs 
while I talk about poems. And so so I was really hands-on as far as what the events would be because of who I'm partnered with for them. Uh-huh. But they um, are the sort of liaison with the bookstore to um, line up sort of where exactly, who'd be hosting the events. Yeah. And so you, I imagine given this time that we're able to do things virtually and it's sort of accepted, like that's just how we do it now, at least at this time, you're able to even be a little bit pickier about here's who I want to be in conversation with. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny. I, I got to pre-record an event a couple weeks ago with Rhett Miller of the old 97s, who's mm-hmm. one of my favorite favorites. And actually, my son is named after him. So, um, yeah, no, no big deal. Not like a super fan or anything. It's fine. Yeah, no, I understand. So he's, you know, in, yeah, he's in New York. I'm in Ohio. The bookstore is in Houston, Texas, Mm -hmm. which of course is like, you know, they're a, they're a Texas band. The old 97s are a Texas band. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I could pre-record something with Rhett for this because he's not available the night of the event. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I asked him and he wasn't. Yeah. So I'm like, well, how about we pre-record it? And, you know, Matthew Cause of the band Not A Surf, again, one of my favorites, we have done some events together in the past. And I was like, I'd love to pick your brain about writing, but he's in Cambridge, England. Right. I'm in Ohio and the bookstore that we want to partner with is in San Francisco. So we're on three completely different time. I mean, it's it's bonkers. Like, how do we yeah. make this work? So we're just going to pre-record it and um, and then they'll play it the night of the event. So having a virtual tour is, you know, it's a pain and it's kind of disappointing for some for some reasons that I think are obvious. Like, I really mm-hmm. like the community aspect of being in a bookstore and looking at people in the face and feeling the energy in a room where you can see that a poem is like landing mm-hmm. with someone and getting to like give a hug and sign a book and and have that ex- shared experience is something that I think we're all craving at this point, not with screens. Right. But it's more accessible frankly, and people can look at my tour schedule and depending on the time zone and the day of the week, they could come to one. Or I've had some people say, I'm coming to more than one because I know all of these conversations are going to be one-offs because mm-hmm. they and they're be, unique, right? They're unique. They'll be led and sort of driven by whoever whoever's asking me the questions and some of them are going to play songs and some of them aren't and I will certainly not be singing. Um, but I, I think, um, so there are some, there are some perks to, to being able to do it this way too. And my kids, frankly, just get to go read a book or do Legos or, you know, listen to Spotify on headphones and draw or whatever for an hour while I log on, do the talk, read some poems, answer some questions, and then shut my laptop. And then I get to be right back within three minutes. I can call all clear and we're all back together again in the living room. Whereas if I were on a book tour doing 14 events, I'd be on planes and in hotel rooms and I'd need childcare yeah. and I wouldn't be seeing them and we'd be FaceTiming. And and so, you know, particularly from that, from the, hey, I'm a, I'm a single mom, this is a lot, um, it's logistically a lot easier for me. Absolutely. Just to pivot a little bit, can you talk about what inspires you to write? What are sort of the things that you keep going back to? There's been a lot of discussion about you're very honest about your personal life in your writing. You're inspired by that. How do you get there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I went through a period of time where I thought there was sort of like writing and writing material, and then there was life, like daily okay. life. And I thought like those two things had to be separate because who really wants to hear about you like emptying your dishwasher, overhearing your kids talking about something in the next room? And I, it, it made me feel frankly really um, stuck because if you have to go outside of your experience, <laughs> um, to find material, you're not going to write very often <laughs> because mm -hmm. you're, li you're, you're living your life. You know, that's the air you're breathing. That's the water you're swimming in. And so it's been really freeing to kind of just be like, you know what? Nope. Forget that. Like, this is the material like this. It's my life. Therefore it's my material. And I'm just going to write as honestly from my experience as I can. And it's, it's kind of surprising, but, but also in some ways not. I think that's part of what draws people to the work is that they're mm -hmm. like, they can see pieces of their own lives in that too. And to, to think that your sort of regular life could be the stuff of, you know, quote unquote literature, I think that's mm -hmm. powerful. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get inspiration from things I see out the windows of my office, from things I think about or hear or see when I'm taking a walk in my neighborhood, from questions my kids ask me, from, um, from really, uh, you know, being in my head and being in the world, mm -hmm. <laughs> often at the same time. <laughs> um, and I think of, in some ways, like my body of work is kind of like a continued conversation I'm having with readers and, and kind mm -hmm. of a continued internal conversation I'm having with myself. So while my first book, you know, the poems I wrote when I was 23 and 24 and 25 are, you know, in some ways different from the poems I was writing at 42 and 43 and 44, they have a lot of things in common because I'm me. Like you, mm -hmm. you don't really outgrow yourself. <laughs> you change, but you're still the same person. And so, you know, I'm still thinking a lot about like, who am I and how do I know what I know and what is this life and how am I supposed to help these people figure stuff out when I still have so many questions myself? And how do we have so much room in our minds for more stuff like <laughs> how does memory work how are how am i holding all of this in myself when i don't have the ability to like upload it to a cloud i'm just carrying mm -hmm. it all i mean this is sort of my interior thought process so i'm really just writing from that like questions i, I would say that's my main inspiration or like the questions hmm. i have about myself and my life and the world and how things work and how things don't work at all and what happened and what could have happened um, i'm just like an endlessly curious person which probably made me a difficult child to raise but it's probably also why i became a writer absolutely well because you're documenting it right and you're sharing right. it i mean i'm not a great picture taker like i don't take that many pictures of my kids i don't often remember to do that but i i think i keep telling them i'm documenting your childhood in words like that's mm -hmm. how i'm documenting it they may not have a ton of photos of themselves past the baby toddler years when i could kind of like catch them um but they have 
like snippets of their dialogue and things that they were thinking um, and saying, because that's the stuff I'm really interested in and holding on to. Yeah. Obviously, there's probably a, a family factor, but can you talk about why you decided to stay in central Ohio? That's it. That's it. Um, okay. I, yeah, I mean, I, I was telling you earlier, I was born at Riverside Hospital. My mom was born at Riverside Hospital. My two kids were born at Riverside Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents still live in the house I grew up in, and I have Sunday dinner there pretty much mm. every Sunday with my sisters and their husbands and their kids. And if I have them, my kids, um, mm-hmm. we're just really rooted. And mm-hmm. so it, I can't quite imagine what it would feel like to be away from them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's been a really difficult few years for me, for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what I would have done honestly, if I had been living thanks to like an academic job or something else, if I had been living far from my family, because even with the pandemic, I was able to drive to Westerville. And even if we couldn't be in the house together, because of the pandemic, I could stand outside at a distance and talk to my parents and I could take my kids out there so they didn't miss their grandkids and they Mm -hmm. could watch them play in the backyard Creek where I played when I was that age. And I don't, I realize that sounds super Mayberry. Um, (laughs) I do realize that. I don't think so, but. Uh, (laughs) You get it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when I tell people that I still live basically in my hometown and I see my aunts and uncles. I mean, I I had coffee with my aunt this morning. I saw most of my extended family over the weekend at a cookout. Like Mm -hmm. if I tell people that they're, reaction is usually one of two things. It's, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I am so jealous that I would love to be closer to my family. You're so lucky. And the other reaction is, oh my God, I can't imagine having, being so close to so many people and, and, you know, living in the same place for so long and running into friends from high school or your, you know, your elementary school librarian at the grocery store or whatever. (laughs) And these things happen. I mean, yeah, particularly now, because now I live in Bexley and it's, you know, a really small community. And if you live in a place this small for 10, 11 years, you know, they know your coffee order when you walk in the door and, and you, you know, it's just, I like it. Like, I like that. I like that sense of familiarity and it makes me feel safe and comfortable. Um, And I like to travel, but I just, I'm always so happy to come home. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, you talk about those two responses because there's two types of people. There's people who like that, that familiarity and there's people that like that anonymity. Um, And there's nothing wrong with either of them, but it's just different. Yeah. And I think it's, it also comes down to like, the relationship you have with your family and some people mm-hmm. just don't aren't that close with their family and they like the two twice a year visit and that is enough and mm-hmm. i you know i like to see them every week and i like to talk to them several times a day and i love our ridiculous family group texts where my dad <laughs> sends you know like weird bit emojis of like hot dogs doing things and i'm like what? right I don't even know if he knows how this functions, but I love it. <laughs> Was this a mistake? Is this, did you mean to send the talking hot dog bitmoji for like a congratulations? Like, I don't even know what this is. 
I love it, though. I love it. I normally wrap this up by asking sort of what is Columbus doing well uh, and what is Columbus maybe not doing so well. You can put that in the context of your work. You can just put that in the context of your just life that you're living here, in the context of your kids. So, yeah, what is Columbus doing well? I mean, I feel like I should stay in Columbus's good graces and maybe not say the things that I don't think Columbus is doing well. I think we make (laughs) Columbus a better place by identifying the improvements that it can make. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should be funding the arts more. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm here to say that. I mean, I think we're doing it, but we could be doing it more. Mm-hmm. Um, like we could, maybe we could take some of that money that we're sending to the CPD and instead <laughs> we could divert it to like the OAC or the uh-huh. GCAC. Um, and All of these acronyms will be linked in the show notes. <laughs> Oh, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but you're not. Um, <laughs> you're, okay. you're safe in Bexley. Okay, I'm safe in <laughs> Bexley. Yeah, I'm in the bubble. You know, I think obviously, I think Columbus is doing more things well than it than not because I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And if my family had chosen to live in a place I hated, I probably wouldn't have stayed. Mm-hmm. So um, I I really do love I really do love the city. I I think people are always surprised when they've never been here and they visit and they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. And oh my gosh, there's so many great restaurants and there's so much green space. And, um, you know, oh wow. Like all these different sort of cool, diverse neighborhoods. I mean, there are, there are so many things I love about this place. Not just that my family's here, although of course that's number one. Mm -hmm. Um, but I hope, you know, I don't know if my kids will always live here. I don't know if they'll be like me and, and they'll drive the hospital curve with their kids and say, kids, that's where I was born and where you were born too, and your <laughs> mother and your grandmother. Right. Um, the way that I do. But um, but I think I think that they will grow up with an appreciation of this place. They like it too. I mean, they're excited to go to a crew game at the new stadium next month because um, mm-hmm. I, I ponied up for tickets and, and they're always excited to like go explore the Metro parks and, um, and they have, you know, certain bakeries that they love and certain, you know, restaurants that they're always begging to be taken to. So um, I don't think they only love this place because their family's here too. I think they genuinely like it for what it is. So, so we're doing something right here. I think so too. Yeah. Maggie, thank you so much for your time. No, this was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite poet. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.